0: one so a lot of you guys were asking like does zach wear the same shirt and the same hat in every video and the answer is yes because the sponsor of this video the digital factory mastermind program you guys want to click that link go to the landing page in the very first video i want you guys to watch i'm actually wearing this this shirt this hat so it's about familiarity so when you go click that link go see the sponsor of today's video you guys want to click that link Sorry, Um, sorry. Dan. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So click that first link in the description, go check out the digital factory mastermind program. We had a new sign up yesterday. That was really awesome. Thank you guys for joining. Thank you for joining today's live stream. We go live every week on Tuesdays at noon central. We have a uh, community spotlight today, Dan Riken, and we have Walker Reynolds on the live stream today. Thank you guys for joining Dan. Welcome. Dan, you might have to unmute now. <laughs> Sorry, it, sounds like you, it sounded like you were playing our live stream in the background there, and it kind of threw me off. Uh, Dan, you're still muted.
1: I'm technically challenged.
0: <laughs> so Dan is a member of our mentorship program, and we really wanted to have him. Actually, no, Dan is now a member of our mastermind program. Excuse me. <laughs> so uh, Dan, tell us a little bit about where you are and what you do, and uh, then I'll kick it over to Walker to ask a follow-up question.
1: Cool. So um, I'm at a stage of my life where I realized I haven't done everything I want to do and automation is what interests me. And so I've been pursuing a path in automation for the last four years fairly serious Uh, got involved with a wastewater water treatment company there's 70 sites, I have some responsibility for in California. And so I use that as my training ground to apply these new concepts and every day I need to learn more. And it turned out LinkedIn was a great place to get to know people.
0: LinkedIn,
2: so that's how you found us.
1: Yeah, Walker and I connected on August seventeenth.
2: And since then, of all the members of the community, I would say I probably talked to Dan. Probably three. I talked to well, I talked to Dan and Mario definitely the most, and then probably Dave Schultz after that. So Mario Shigawa. Um, Dan Riken, Dave Schultz, and then probably Andrew Ott is probably number four that I talk to the most, but I talk to Dan the most, for sure. We probably touch base every week to 10 days yeah. or so. Um, yeah. And, and Dan has had a lot of, I, Dan has been a, you've provided a lot of contribution to the community around philosophy, like a philosophy and attitude and the Ooh, types of the attitude report. it takes. Right to to you know you you're part of the Saturday you guys meet every other Saturday right you guys yes. there's a study group that meets every other Saturday you guys call it the war room now is that the
1: well that the it's um it's I call it study group one but as those of the group that have gone into practical they move over to the war room and they get pretty serious about the nitty gritty and that's and that's just a little beyond where I'm at in the program
2: okay. And so where are you in terms of mentorship? What where where are you phase wise? You're in step uh, one? Phase
1: wise, I'm uh, about halfway through my step one curriculum. I had um I I will call them obstacles or challenges at work, things that had to take priority. I was part-time when Zach had me sign up. And then oh, I got okay. full-time, and it's like, oh darn. I mean, you know, look, full time's good, right? No real complaint other than now I have to allot a different, you know, set of hours to do the to do the curriculum.
2: So you're you're different than well, you're not totally different, right? So John Sindrich and you are similar in that John has a John has a background in industry, but he's a he's a quality guy who's moving over to industry 4.0, right? What tell us a little bit about your background? So what is your professional background and and what drove you
1: towards automation,
2: you know, midway through your career or late, later in your career?
1: Uh, a good question, well stated. So some of the best parts of my life occasionally was when I started a software company and uh, we were very successful for 16 years. And look, not all of it was a bed of roses. There was ups and downs and there was times that I almost lost it a couple times. And so, but I've had to learn how to make payroll and how to stay focused and make the right decisions, make all the correct decisions to stay alive. And whether I made all the right decisions or not, I'm not able to tell you for sure. But I did stay alive for 16 years. We were the biggest of the little guys in our realm. And what I have the skill of doing is knowing what the product needed to do to make the next customer say yes. And I believe in industry 4.0, my instinct is going to be valuable.
2: And so so what it, what's the if you had to boil down what you've learned so far? So since August September when you started engaging with the community, if you had to boil it down to a point, what is the what's the, the one big takeaway or and, and if, if one is too difficult, what are the two big takeaways?
1: oh wow so my mind. mind saw an orchestra with everybody playing an instrument and some of them were on different notes learning how to get rid of all the sour noted instruments first getting able to take away all the people that don't know how to how to hit you know the A like the concert master is expecting eliminating all them and <laughs> In short, if they don't agree with Walker, they are now suspect in my view.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> Mario, Mario Shigawa said in the uh, in the um, chat that, you know, everyone and you introduce those that should be connected. What what, what I would argue, th- this is how I describe Dan, Dan is y- you and I are kindred spirits, right? Yes. Um, from a like an emotional, spiritual level, we're kindred spirits, right? And And that's where my, I mean, they're all the technical stuff, you know, that in, in terms of our relationship, that's ancillary, right? It, it, it's a deeper, you know, spiritual connection that I, you know, I have, have with you and, and that we've sort of riffed off of, you know, and you've provided a ton of great, you know, if, if we were going to create, you know, the group, your group of guys that all get together, if we were, if we, when we were sitting down and we were saying, Hey, listen, we want to foster this community. That's what we, when Zach myself, Zach and Vaughn sat down and said, Hey, let's do the discord server. And we we're talking about this, like in July or whatever. And we said, let's, let's, we want to foster a community. If we, at that time, it was only a concept. It was an idea that, of you know, if you build it, they will come and we'll attract all the right, you know, moth to a flame and all that stuff you you guys in that group you and the and the group of guys that core group of guys that you're a part of are that's the reality that we were trying to work to you know what i mean and and so it and it it, it's incredibly refreshing i mean it really makes us feel you know like we're making a difference that this community really is making a difference and if you look at the the growth of the the discord server and that community the a the fact that we've been able to keep it valuable to engineers one of the biggest things when we were talking about this was you know you're going to end up with a bunch of sales guys in there trying to sell to everybody i mean that's what's going to end up happening and how can we manage how can we make it so that you're're you know engineers aren't inundated with business development guys trying to sell them something i think that's what our contribution has been is that we've been able to moderate it so that it it it's valuable to engineers and i think now we broke 1100 members of the Discord server
0: mass, like in the last few weeks, it's really started to grow where it was more so us being more active to where now the community has really outpaced us.
2: Yeah, that's right. The community. Right. We don't we were originally driving it. And now we're not now we're just moderating. Right. And now what we're really doing is looking for the people in the community, the Mario's of the world and the Dave's and the Dan's and the John cetera, etc, etc, that that are going to help scale, right? They, you know, the be you know, take a bigger role as members of the community, right? Leading the community. But Dan, with you, you know, so now you've had four or five months of this development in industry 4.0. How do you see it applying to your career for the rest of 2021? So right you're in you're in digital mastermind now, so you're going through mastermind and mentorship at the same time. How do you, where do you see your career going, the, your career arc over, say, the next year, the next 12 months, as a function of what you're learning through the community?
1: In water and wastewater, the sites that have alarms, when the alarms go off, that usually means, hey, get a truck rolling. Well, you know, that's talking about a $500 cost. Is it necessary? Uh, and I've got some 70 sites <clears throat> it is in my vision that all 70 sites will be on a dashboard so that when my boss wakes up in the morning he sees the dashboard <laughs> he can hit snooze and this is a little different walker than maybe you would have expected but I have to see the world through the through what's ahead of me some of these sites do not have, High-end skaters. Some of them have. Some of them have. We, we deactivated this one, but up until about six months ago, we had a Radio Shack dialer, calling our answering service. So we, you know, there was some improvements that I was able to help generate. And whether the information from the sites is coming real time. It's not as important as my boss being able to see that the dashboard as of all we know, what is the source of truth to now that we can detect? How does it look from there? And little by little by little, I intend to be using a UNS type framework and get it real time. In any case, this is my passion.
2: Excellent, awesome. Uh, Anything else you wanna cover? Anything else you you wanna uh, talk about, or, uh, I, I'd like for you to stay on, on this meeting the whole time that way, if the you want to contribute while, Let's while I'm that. answering well, you questions came up with the rule of Borg. That's right. Yes. It, well, one of the things that if you talk about Dan, you guys will notice in my one note at the top, I have the rule of Borg, which is what any nodes know, all nodes know. And that that's actually a quote from Dan. Dan is the one. So for those of you that rule of Borg that's a star Trek term, right? So the Borg was, um, like an up, upper level intelligence species that was all interconnected, basically, what any what any what any one node knew in the Borg ecosystem, all nodes knew, right? And and Dan actually sent that quote saying, "Hey, that's what the the, the UNS is. It's it's the rule of Borg, right? What any nodes know, all nodes know." I use the term, the unified namespace is omniscient and omnipresent. That's how I describe it. That is omniscient it knows everything and omnipresent it's everywhere and so when people ask me where does the unified namespace live well it lives everywhere it every it, it, if it's set up correctly, you can have many 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 instances of the unified namespace um, that in real time all have the exact same uh, structure and events all right um, and, and in SQL server terms, Imagine you had always on replication of your database to unlimited nodes in your ecosystem. So I could hit many different endpoints. Instead of using like a virtual host name, I could hit many, many databases that all have exactly the same values at the exact same time. That is the unified namespace. Dan is the one who gave us the term, what any nodes know, all nodes know. And you'll notice it's at the top of, of my slide uh, each week. And that came from Dr. Reichen over here.
1: <laughs> lieutenant dan is how i'm affectionately referred to L-
2: lieutenant dan it is lieutenant dan so, it is
1: uh walker yeah. if i might add to that the um it, it took me a little courage to write you that email about the rule of board because it, it it there's a vulnerable aspect of me that had to be presented to explain it number one believe it or not i have never seen the star trek episode where this oh. is discussed it okay. I, it, 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 it I have a, you know, a a resistance is futile, I get that, but where it came from, and it wasn't named instantly, but where it came from was in my software company, there came a time where I had to leave for an extended period of time and I did not want to go. And I was scared, but I knew that I had to go and I had to prepare my employees to operate in my absence. And so there was several things that I had to take a risk with that. I never would have mm-hmm. otherwise, right. Um, one of the things that I did to prepare for today was, to was to review once again, your core values, because your, your introduction was correct. You and I have, there's, there's an affinity that we have for similar beliefs, even as different as we are. Yeah. There's it, it um, and so transparency fits the rule of board. So here I'm stealing now your your five core values to say no that's actually in there. It's in the rule of board. Authenticity, humility, a faith faith based servant leadership. Now here's how that would apply. The rule of board wasn't meant from a religious basis. It was a meant from an efficiency basis. If one of my employees knew something that would make it go better for another employee. In my absence, that information had to get there and I wasn't gonna be the one carrying the water. That's right. And so I had to teach them to do that. Um, and you know, I guess we can say I was lucky to learn it. And then in time I coined the phrase uh, and it sat on the shelf for over a decade. It was totally useless information until I met Walker.
2: I've read that email, probably fifty times. I read it to my you're, kids. You're I read it to my of wife. after this, Walker. What that? You're probably going to get a ton of emails from our community <laughs> member after I, this. Yeah, I, 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 and actually, I messaged Dan right afterwards, and I'm like, man, I'm really, I'm, I'm very, very thankful you sent this. Made my day. I'm incredibly thankful you sent this. By the way, this is how much of a Star Trek nerd I am. I believe the Borg is introduced in in star trek the next generation in season one episode 16. and i want somebody to check and see if that's the case but i, <laughs> I i'm almost certain it's i know the name one. of the episode is q who Q who it's q hugh right q who yep. yeah Q-Hu. that's how much of a star trek nerd I am. <laughs> yeah so uh all right great dan thank you i please stay on the zoom call and and i'm gonna um i'm gonna go through my normal uh question and answer session. So Dan Bryken, thank you very, very much. One of the things I want to say to the community is, you know, uh, by the way, this is the rule of Borg here at the top, uh, that, you know, Dan is, if, if there is, there are very few people in the community, I would argue are more approachable than Dan is. So, um, you know, especially for those people who are trying to find their place in the community, trying to find their place you know in this this fourth industrial revolution how it is that we're going to help manufacturers leverage technology to do more with less Dan is is the guy I would have the first conversation with if I'm being honest with you and the reason why is because it wasn't that long ago when Dan didn't know where his place was and 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 some of us will feel like we've had it figured out for a long time right and and, and Dan, it, he 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 doesn't feel like he's had it figured out for a long time when it comes to industry 4.0. So that, and in, in there isn't a more approachable person in the community. And I, I truly appreciate your contribution, man. I mean it. Um. Oh, just to fact check you, Walker, it was season two, episode 16. Oh, t- season two, episode 16. Okay, right. dang it. Um, I knew it was episode 16. I don't know why I knew that, but <laughs> I did. Um, all right. Uh, episode uh, Discord. So we're at eleven hundred nine members um, as of today. Uh, the interesting stat there is that actually more than half of those members, the eleven hundred nine members, are active at least once a week. That's the that's a that's the most crazy number to me is that we've got over five hundred and fifty people on the who are members of the server who are active at least one time per week on the server. That is. They've uh either posted, liked, you know, emoticond or whatever. Um, this week we're shooting a podcast called The Economics of Industry 4.0 for service providers and end users. Okay. So what that means is we are going we're gonna shoot a podcast that is going to explain how it is that end users and service providers, so that's systems integrators and OEMs, the how they benefit economically from the fourth industrial revolution, right? There's so many questions I get related to, well, if what you're doing, like, aren't this is probably the most common question I get. By by designing these architectures, aren't you basically engineering out the role of the systems integrator? I mean, I get that question all the time. And so part of the the, the podcast will be to address that. The answer is, no, in fact, we're creating. You're creating new markets completely. What what end, What it means is that systems integrators are going to stop doing, you know, point to point integrations, and they're going to start doing, you know, distributed integrations. That's really what it means. Um, the other thing we're we're currently editing the FreeWave video, the re- the review video. Um, I feel terrible for this. We we shot. I shot the open box videos and all of the development videos for freewave i think in november end of end of november and then because of yeah i think it was in the end of november uh we've got and then we didn't and then i i we have to shoot a 5 minute finish you know uh but we're currently editing all the freewave stuff so there's a big freewave edge zoom edge review video that we're releasing we we hell we wanted to release it in december but you know the schedules have just it's just not been good to us um uh, we received the PLC Next. So, for those of you guys who don't know, um, Phoenix Contact has a, an IoT platform, um, a, a whole IoT ecosystem called PLC Next. Um, and they sent to both myself and Zach, they sent uh, review units for us. So, we're going to be doing a comprehensive review of the technology right down to the software, the PLC Next store avail- available on their website, and, and the hardware. So, uh, tell them, I tell them our idea with the two PLC Next. Yeah, so what we're gonna do is we are going to separately integrate the two PLC next into the same unified ecosystem. Him and this Phoenix, here. me here in Dallas. We're gonna I, do I that the, together. I got the one he's one right got in here. his closet. And here's the one I the one I've got right here. And then they sent a bunch of IO and um
0: Thank you, Ira Sharp. Shout out, he's in the Discord um for shipping us these units. Thank you. He also has a really cool podcast that he did with uh uh I think it was Ravi or one of the uh he does the automation, uh he does like automation content. I'll link it below, but it was a really good podcast. And my thoughts process when after I listened to that podcast, you know, Phoenix Contact had been wanting to, you know, ship us these units for a while. And finally I got Yeah, it was probably
2: to, they probably reached out like beginning of last
0: summer or something. It was a long time ago. I finally got around to listening to this podcast. And I'm like, wow, these guys get it. These guys have been listening like it. they're part of the community. So thank you, Ira.
2: And just so you guys know, Ira totally respects the fact that we have to remain impartial. There's been, there's no quid pro quo. There's no, we're not being compensated in any way, shape or form. Um, he, you know, Ira and his team believe so much in their technology that they're, you know, they're not, let, they, they believe in that technology so much. They're willing to put it through the the gauntlet, which. Um, you guys know me that if, if it, if I'm not satisfied, everyone's going to know I'm not satisfied with it, but I I do feel obligated to give them a plug because this is obviously thousands of dollars worth of hardware that they shipped out. Um, although the pricing on the PLC next is incredibly competitive. Um, so I'm, I'm actually really, really surprised on the pricing, but I do want to read the thing. So they sent a lot of, you know, swag, uh, you know, Yeti, they sent a bottle opener, a hat, and you know all that, all the stuff they normally send. But um, the technology is pretty impressive. Um, you know, software is downloadable. I don't know if you guys. Well, let me ask you this: How many of you guys have used um, Phoenix Contact PLCs in the past? I have not used
0: their PLCs, but I have been extensive use of their power supplies, redundancy modules, and all of their terminal blocks and things of that nature.
2: So I'm only test drove the software. I have not. This this will be my first test drive on the the actual PLC Next units, the PLC units themselves. But they're full IIoT out of the box. So, but uh, basically this is how they describe it on the card that they sent to me, which was uh, PLC Next technology is the ecosystem for industrial automation, the combination of open control platform, which is one of the the only reason I considered doing this is because the control platform is open. That's the only reason I agreed to do it. Um, Modular engineering software, digital software marketplace enables easy adaptation to changing demands and the efficient utilization of existing and future software services. What they mean there is that the community can collaborate with objects through the the online store. Um, And due to simple cloud integration, the possibility of using open source software and the constantly growing know-how of the user community PLC next technology is able to meet all challenges of the IOT world that is remains to be seen. We are definitely going to put it through the the ringer and then we'll let you guys know what we think. Um, Go ahead, Zach. So I do want to share like when I was kind of first learning, I was talking to um,
0: uh, one of the I was talking to uh, Ira about some of the features and he put me in contact with one of the technical engineers and he was answering a few of my questions. Talking about how it can run any code, and I was like, "Oh, that kind of to me, it sounds like the Opto Twenty Two Groove Epic." It's right. like, "Yeah, you know, same, same approach, same boat," but yep. I think the pricing on the on the PLC Next is it's way more different. competitive. Yeah, it's a different yep. kind of. The, model, the big thing,
2: the you, yeah, the the PLC Next is 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 uh, you know, is um between it's going to fall between the it's going to be in the price point between Easy Automation and Opto. It's going to be in that price point in the middle, so it's going to be it, you know, the pricing is very, very, I mean, you know, not expect, we're going to give a full review. So expect that after the, and then we'll probably do a podcast and, and invite Ira and his, his group on, uh, same thing we're doing with free wave. Um, all right. The other thing is this Friday, we have the digital transformation maturity assessment webinar at 10 o'clock in the morning. So, so far we got 275 people who've signed up. Is that the most we've ever had pre-register? an event most
0: we ever had was frameworks university like over 500 so okay
2: um you guys can see i don't pay attention to all those um but this one's going
0: to be really big this one is this one's different than frameworks you'll want to attend because it's going to be unlisted after this is if you're in our mastermind program you'll get access to not only the recording on friday but also more but because we wanted to let, everyone's been asking us how do we do digital transformation maturity assessments? We decided to do a free one hour training. So attend live and then after that it'll be unavailable.
2: So the this there, session is all about what is a, a digital transformation maturity assessment? So we're gonna talk about what it is within, for all of you guys who are members of mentorship and digital mastermind, what is a digital transformation maturity assessment and how does it fit in our steps to digital transformation, we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about what do what do we do when we're doing the assessment. What is what are all the steps? Who do you talk to? What questions do you ask? We're going to do that at a probably a ten thousand to five thousand foot view, because we got to get everything in in one hour. But the, you know, there are there are also. We're not, we're not gonna, right. We're not publishing the link, right? That's the idea Yeah. after it's the gonna stream. Kind of
0: similar to how the digital mastermind webinar was except right now, if you put in your email you can watch the free one hour mastermind webinar but this one, it's just gonna be live once. Uh, I did, someone did say they're in like, uh, it's gonna be like 2 a.m. for them. So I said, we'll leave the, the link on the registration page or on the, the page for 24 hours.
2: So if you, uh, yeah, mi- but you Mr. Want to attend Mr. Mamantos uh interested in the capabilities of precis- precision time control and time sensitive network on PLC next yes that's on my list for testing already. Good question. Um all right so let's get to our let's get to our questions. We're going to start with uh Mario. Uh Ishikawa he asked regarding OEE this is a great question by the way Mario get it all the time. <clears throat> Regarding OEE, he, you've, I've seen plants calculating the area OEE as the average of its lines OEE, as well as the new calculation um, from a sum of all machines. Indicators like sum of available all time, planned downtime, sum of all machine production, divided by the sum of all machine ideal production. Which one is more correct or more accepted? Okay, so to give a little context here, so in the ISA 95 world enterprise, site that your plant area line cell right what he's saying is is when i've got you know i have oee calculated at my production line can you pay overall that up a little bit can you blow it up a little bit yeah um or actually let me just change the font size all right there we go. so what he's what he's saying is is that at at the at the line level You know when you go to a production line you're going to see oee calculated at the production line okay and that oee is broken down into availability quality and performance right if the availability number is low so what oee is availability times quality times performance if if the availability number is low it's driving the oe number down you yell at the maintenance guy if the quality number is low you yell at engineering or the quality group or your oem performance is low you yell at operations that's basically what it boils down to the question he's asking is is areas are groups of production lines and so he's he's saying i've seen oee at the area level calculated many ways one way is people will average the three oee numbers together okay to give you an area area oee line that is not the way to do it okay it it now it is a quick way of giving you area level OEE, but it is not the the best practice. The best practice is you take the aggregation of all the minutes, so scheduled runtime in minutes, scheduled uh, unplanned downtime in minutes, planned downtime in minutes, the good parts versus total parts. You aggregate all those numbers and you do that calculation from the aggregates. Here's why. You could get a paradox. Well, what you do is- Simpsons paradox. By, yeah, basically by, exactly. Basically by averaging the three together, you apply the same weight to all three lines. However, I may have a line that only ran for 10 minutes and I may be averaging that with two lines that ran for eight hours. And what I would do is I may have had a bad 10 minute period. And so by averaging those three together, you, you are equalizing the weight of the three production lines artificially. And so that's why you do it from aggregates. but it's an outstanding question. That being said, that being said, sorry Zach, that being said, I see them average together all the time. And what I will do is I will point out to the client, our team will point out to the client this sh- that you need to be aware that you are unfairly equalizing the weights of these production lines. And so therefore it's gonna skew that output. But here's the point. If you are averaging them together in one area, you need to be averaging them together everywhere. Otherwise you are not doing an apples to apples comparison. But in, a- in in general, don't average them together. You need to use aggregates. Go ahead, Zach. So in
0: order to do that, the same OEE engine that you would run your line data through, you would run the sum of all of your lines through the, that area result set, you'd run that through your OEE engine. That's something we talked Correct. about a little bit. But um, the follow-up question is that is how do you wait for the fact that machine A may make product that's 10 times more valuable than machine B? Is there like a real cost OEE or a real so, profit?
2: So you do that at the ERP layer? So you bring that, you come up to the ERP layer and you retrieve what is known as a uh you you calculate a value per percentage of OEE by machine. That's how you do that. And that is a that's a completely separate number. It's not an OEE calculation. That's done at the finance level. It's a separate calculation, but it, it uses the OEE number to achieve it. Yep. Got it. Thanks. All right, Mr. Is it is his name Matt Paris? Is it Matt? Matthew, Matthew. Yeah. Okay. So Matt Paris um, asked the question, was the partnership that formed in 2018 between PTC and Kepware and Rockwell, an implicit announcement that Rockwell PLCs will never support IIoT protocols on board? Okay, okay this is an outstanding question. It's got a kind of a long answer, but it, the, the answer is no, that's not what it means. What it means is that Rockwell realized that they had, they had been so focused on owning the stack, being completely vertically integrated, and then using products that they own at one layer in the automation stack to get you to buy products they own in the other ones in the other layers. They're trying to incentivize you to do that. They realized very quickly that there was a huge gap in their technology. Okay, there were, there were two gaps, but there was a huge gap. Gap number one was that Rockwell really did not have an IIoT platform in their stable. That is a platform where you could plug into an IIoT infrastructure that is, you know, based on MQTT or DMb 3 any of the report by exception protocols or a unified namespace and be able to like build dashboard solutions quickly in, in that platform. So that that's where PTC's ThingWorks comes in. So if you look at, I think they call it the factory talk innovation suite now, all factory talk innovation suite is is thingworks with a rockwell logo on it that's all it is and that's the that was the primary reason for that partnership okay but at the same time right right before that partnership was announced 2 years before that PTC acquired kepware and the reason PTC acquired kepware was cuz they realized they had a gap okay or oh, hold on a second i want to go back Gap number one was that Rockwell did not have an IOT platform. Gap number two was Rockwell really didn't have an efficient mechanism for sharing data from the their Rockwell stack to um, other pieces of software. okay And they and Thingworks actually does that fairly well. So that's why they they did that billion dollar partnership. The downside is of that partnership, is that all of the things that made PTC Thingworks great, pre-Rockwell partnership, they will be under continued pressure to not do those things anymore because Rockwell is a company that focuses on being vertically integrated. Rockwell tells their Rockwell partners, make it hard for Rockwell competitors to talk to your product. They do that as an actual strategy. That's an actual approach because Rockwell's focus is on getting you to buy all Rockwell products. They don't care if their products are not great in some areas of the stack. In my opinion, Rockwell is only good at one thing, and that is PLCs, and that was Alan Bradley. That wasn't Rockwell, okay? If you look at all the products that Rockwell Automation sells, there is only one product product line that they sell that we believe, can be, you can make the argument it's best in class. And that is their PLC lines, specifically control logics, both safety and process automation. But I wanna touch on one other point, PTC and Kepware, PTC acquired Kepware a year, maybe two years before the Rockwell partnership. Um, And the reason that PTC did that acquisition was because PTC realized they had one huge gap they had a, a really huge gap in their suite of solutions, and that was no machine connectivity. In order for PTC to remain competitive and, not be, and be more than just a dashboarding solution, they had to have a way to talk to all the stuff on the plant floor, and that's why they bought Kepware. The downside of that acquisition is that PTC has made strategic decisions as it relates to Kepware, and, and re- strategic decisions as it relates to Thingworks, that closes the platform and steers everyone towards the PTC suite of solutions. And they don't really take into consideration um, opening up their suite of solutions for non-PTC partners or non-Rockwell partners. Mm. They don't really think about that strategically. What they'll do is they'll quickly say, oh, if you want to talk to our PTC stuff, use MQTT, use OPC UA, ne- they never get to the point where they acknowledge that you have limited capability when you do that through their their solutions. Now, go ahead, Zach. No way. So, because the
0: question comes up is, well, then why didn't uh, PTC just focus on being a great dashboarding solution and leverage the UNS to get edge connectivity?
2: Because node in an ecosystem. Because PTC to own the whole stack? PTC is in the business of selling licenses. Why does Tesla exist? The other why did manufacturers ha- create oh, a gap that, that to, to, accelerate no, the, to accelerate the advent? What is the what is the what is the mission of Tesla? To accelerate the advent of sustainable energy. Okay, that is not PTC's mission. <laughs> okay, PTC does not have a mission that is has anything grander than the bottom and line. This is why it's not same thing 4. with Rockwell because Rockwell has 0. one. Rockwell Automation has one mission and one mission only: make the shareholders happy at the end of this quarter. Right. That's it. There's no mission beyond that. Well, the okay, mission. That's is the challenge. It, but
0: they're they're not they're not honest about what those values are, and that's why they're not industry 4.0 is because industry 4.0 is 100 percent values based. Yes. Profit is not a value. That's number one. You know.
2: That's a good uh, question, Pete- Matthew. Thank you. PPC will partner with anyone and everyone. Um, uh, JRS89, more boring way to answer that area. Uh, Yes, uh, JRS89 put in a a good comment on the OEE. Uh, He he uses equations to show the flaw. Um, All right, Uh, let's go to Paul's question. How does someone assess the machine learning capabilities of a company what types of questions bring about insights now paul i'm going to answer this question from the perspective that you are asking me how do i how do i assess the machine learning capabilities of someone who is selling a machine learning solution okay so that is say that um um what is it expanse ai is the uh, they're the guys that we're working with right now expanse.ai um they've basically they're using artificial intelligence to make machine learning easier. And it's a brilliant, brilliant platform that they've got. Uh, We love it. So I'm going to tell you the questions I asked them to evaluate what their capabilities were when they reached out and they said, Hey, we've got this expanse.ai, we've got this platform. uh, We've got, you know, here's our intellectual property. This is our value in the market. And I asked them the the following questions. Number one, walk me through the process of organizing your data for your model. So when you when you have your when you do your your problem statement which is I want to I have high downtime on this this uh, conveyor system and to lower that downtime I want to predict failures before they happen. Let's say and and I want to focus on these three failures, okay? So that's the problem statement you're trying to solve. So what you do is you identify digital sensors, digital data that you can use for, say, your linear regression, right? So a linear regression would be for every value X, what is the, what based on my data, for every value X that I see on a sensor, what is the likely output Y? And at some point, Y equals failure. So at some threshold, Y equals that the bearing failed, or Y equals that we've got a burst hydraulic hose or Y equals a pump went bad, right? Um, and we want to be able to predict that before it actually happens. So we want to see the trend that gets us there, right? That that That's an example of a machine learning model you would train in order to predict that. The training of the model is we create the model itself and then we use the historical data, we use the historical data to learn the patterns That we want the machine learning, the machine learning model to recognize if I see this pattern, it means there's a 94% likelihood we have a hydraulic hose breaking in the next 15 minutes, right? That would be an output. So the question I ask them is A, how do you acquire the data? In what format do you acquire that data? Okay. Number two, how do you structure the data? So that is what form does the structure of all of those events that I'm monitoring take. Because one of the things that machine learning uh, ML products have to do is they have to take data in the format you have it in your organization and put it in the format they need it in, in order for them to learn some context about your operations and then give you a model that you can use. And that model basically runs right alongside the actual state changes the events that are happening on the plant floor when it sees a pattern it recognizes and it outputs hey you have a 94 percent likelihood hydraulic hose is going to break in 15 minutes that that's an example right so i ask him that what what format how do you get it acquire it and what format do you put it in the biggest question i ask him is this though how do you normalize unnormalized data so that is and here's normalization If 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 I'm monitoring two data points at my data point X, which is gonna be um it's gonna be actually let's say it's two data points. It's an aggregation of a temperature of the hydraulic fluid and the and the pressure of the hydraulic fluid. Okay. And the Y is the failure. That is that the the hydraulic hose is gonna fail. Okay. And I'm, I'm monitoring an aggregation and we have the Y, which is the likelihood of the failure. Um, the sensors, those two sensors that I'm using, temperature and, and pressure, they update at different rates. So that means every value change is gonna have a different timestamp. So what you wanna do is you wanna get them normalized the best you can. That is, when the temperature was this temperature at this time, what was the pressure at the exact same time? Our systems don't collect the data like that though. So I may see a timestamp of 12 o'clock and four seconds for pressure, and then a timestamp of 12 o'clock and um, six seconds for, for uh, temperature. And they may update at different rates, okay? One of the challenges that you have in machine learning is getting those normalized. So the normalization process is, giving you a pressure and a and a temperature for each time in a time series data set okay that's called normalization i ask them how do you do that that's a question you ask them if they give you a deer in headlights look run because it means that they have never run into an industrial machine learning problem before they've never solved one because you wouldn't be able to solve it you wouldn't be able to solve it without Without being able to normalize the data. Okay. Um, and here's the last one. Once you've got your data, it, once you've got your data um, um, normalized and collected, how long does it take you to teach the model? And how do you deploy what you've learned to the edge? That's the other question I ask. Mario asked, uh, hopefully that answered his question. Um, and hopefully i didn't lose a bunch of people there. Uh i've seen at least failed to create any real market outcome. There you go. All right, uh Mario again. My uh, i hope everything's fine there in Texas. It is. Thank you. Um yes, there are people here who have to boil the water and stuff and there's been you know, it was a rough week but um you know, i read the national news. I mean, any most Texans read the national news and roll their eyes. So, it's not nearly as bad as The national news is telling you um by the way and there's no one in texas who's suggesting that we should connect our energy grid to the rest of the country there's not a single person here who's saying we need to do that uh texans are texans first and americans second so uh that's how texans think they do not identify as an american first they identify as a texan first um but thank you for asking uh can the tag browsing discovery along with the tag auto creation be used as a security threat by injection. So this is a question Mario asked earlier. I gave a quick answer in Discord. An example, an unwanted node is placed and misconfigured, this is in the unified namespace, to an MQTT broker, to create a lot of inserts on the historian to use all disk space or computer resources. In that case, TLS and proper security on the edge node would mitigate, but I wonder if this is the real threat and what are the best ways to avoid. So basically what he's saying is this, got a unified namespace with a bunch of nodes connected and someone connects another node to the broker is it a real risk that that person might stream data at too high of a rate that's going to for example find its way into a sql table or find its way into a historian and it's basically like a denial of service attack the answer is yes that is a real risk how do we mitigate it we mitigate it through user roles so we don't, we don't allow open authentication against the broker, number one. So that is you always require username and password and you always use their the user authentication to define what their role is uh, with the broker. Are they read only? Are they read write? Or, and specifically what topics they are allowed to read or write to. Okay, that's all done through the setup. So yes, that's how you mitigate it. What we say is this, is that when you are adding a node that is going to write information, not just consume, but it's going to publish information to the unified namespace, you have to be diligent in applying the permissions that you apply to that node. It's not any different than your standard IT security practices, but it is a great question. Yes, it is a real threat, but it is easily mitigated through best practices. Um, All right, John McKeon. Hey all, does anyone know of a USB wireless dongle solution that can be deployed to connect the PLC to a machine wireless network, not limited to Wi-Fi, LoRa, or also other considered? All right, good question, McKeon. The answer is on a case-by-case basis. So yes, there are wireless USB dongles that you can plug into PLCs, but you're gonna have to buy a different one for each PLC because the PLC is gonna have to house the driver Itself right so and I, I, I popped an example up here for you. If you look at uh Amazon, you can go on Amazon and buy a uh a serial to USB dongle for an S7 200, for example. There are many examples out there, okay, but they are on a case by case basis with the exception of um the Opto 22. You would be able to do a direct plug in because of the OS that runs on opto 22 there's native drivers built in that's a very good question though uh pat Patton j2 said question on ignition canary integration how do ignition tag properties map to canary tag properties i'm specifically wanting at a minimum to have description and units of measure be able to be configured in one place ideally as close to the source as possible all right so what he's saying here is for those of you that don't know ignition this won't mean anything but ignition a tag inside of ignition has many properties. So you know, you have tag, object, dot value will give you the current value, dot timestamp will give you the timestamp of the, when the value changed. Dot documentation is basically a string field that I could populate anything in there if I wanted to. There's units of measure, so dot UOM, if I have that in there, I can type in what the unit of measure is. He's saying, he's asking the question, how do those map into Canary? The answer is, They don't because those are not historized. The dot value is what's historized. But the way that we solve that problem is we create a user-defined data type. We use a base data type, which I've showed everyone how we do this. We create a base boolean, we create a base float, a base int. Sometimes what we do in those base is we create a memory tag that has that unit of measure, and then the property in the tag is mapped to the memory tag. So what it would look like is something like this. I have a a tag my tag object and it's a UDT. So the in and, and I'm going to have a memory tag inside of that user defined type that is memory unit of measure, memory uh what was it? description. And then in so in the parent tag the dot the dot description retrieves its value from memory description and the dot unit of measure, what's that? Can you increase the font size a little bit? Oh, sorry. Uh, And then what we do is because this is a tag, because these are tags here, we historize those. Okay, And so then you've got them both available, unit of measure and description in the historian the 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 challenge you have is that you don't in a historian you don't historize the tag object from ignition you historize the value and the timestamp which are only two parameters of a tag object tag.value tag.timestamp gives you your
0: history is he wanting to know the history of when the memory description or when the unit of measure changed? Or is he just wanting to query Canary, get the value, and also
2: the contextual data, such as? Correct. You know, you know, you know, That's you know, what it know. sounds like. Yep. Okay. Um. um you know, all right. You know, so uh, Matt Paris, let me skip over that one real quick. And then I'll go. At, we may have to do that one next week because it's a long answer. Hesh uh, R said, uh, You watched an interesting video on data distribution service. I want to make sure I touch on this. Positioned as the industry for uh, data infrastructure, it'd be great to get your thoughts, real-world application. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to refer you guys to this white paper. Um, We'll put the link in the description here, and I want you to go ahead and read. It's DDS versus MQTT, okay? I I want everyone to understand what DDS is, okay? And so that I can then answer your question on how it compares to MQTT. Here's the answer in a nutshell. So you'll on page 1 you guys will read the data distribution service, what a data distribution service is and then what is MQTT? Um in a nutshell, a data distribution service is middleware that is pub sub, okay? In a, in a nutshell, it's middleware that is pub sub. Here's the problem with it. The problem is, is that it's heavyweight, very heavyweight. It's very verbose, and it's not it's not lightweight in any way, shape, or form. And one of our minimum technical requirements for your IIoT infrastructure is lightweight. Is a data distribution service open architecture? It can be, it, But there are there are some of them that are not open okay um that is it, it's a the the protocol interaction the the transport layer is open but the protocol is not okay um a data just a good example of a data distribution service would be um it would be similar to like a tibco data bus on steroids that's a dds and the answer is no it cannot it does it serve server role in industry 4.0 yes really robust networks where i'm i'm passing you know wholly object-oriented models yes then the dds is going to serve a purpose but it is not going to be the backbone of your iot infrastructure but what we're going to do is we're going to include this document you guys can go ahead and read the analysis here positives negatives etc etc what i will say is this paper does not take into account the spark plug b specification for mqtt so what they're comparing here is flat mqtt or as most of you guys know vanilla mqtt version 3.1.1 and uh and a data distribution service but uh, outstanding question um the I think their conclusion is that DDS is the the way of the future let me see can't remember uh yeah it just it it, it gives you a generic uh answer given the results of the comparison there's a good reason to choose each for the of the three given a specific use case um but uh the the where this paper falls short is it doesn't take into account sparkplug b so encryption and and uh um encryption compression um etc uh, and then i think the last one's going to be Tulip. okay oh walker can you share that link
0: in the discord real quick just so anyone listening or watching oh, yeah, yeah. after can
2: Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and drop it in right now. Which channel can people find it in? The, wait, no, I'm going to I'm going to um I'm going to drop it in the YouTube chat and then you can grab it.
0: Okay.
2: I'll put it in the unified namespace channel for you guys. Yep. Um and I I want to uh, so two questions that we'll do next week. I'm going to answer Matt Paris's Long question about architecture, basically migrating, you know, um, to a, a a new architecture. The short answer to your question, Matt Paris, if you're watching, QoS two with the retain flag set is going to be sufficient on the history side. What I'm going to answer is um, how do historians? He asks the question: When you have a historian connect to an MQTT broker, what do you do about disconnects? The answer is store and forward. So basically, what a historian will do, what the node will do. Is it'll stream all the events through the broker and into the historian once the connection's re reestablished. So, say I've got like ten tag changes that happened while I was disconnected. Um, when I reconnect, it's gonna it's gonna do all ten of those um, those publishes right in a row, and and the last value, the last uh, element in the array, will be the current value. This is one of the beauties of MQTT. It's one of the advantages over OPC UA is that MQTT out of the box, the timestamp comes from the edge. It's originated from the edge. So we're never, we're not storing the timestamp server side. So I could, using an MQTT broker, I could store my history for an entire day somewhere and then stream it through a broker at midnight when I've got low network traffic. To get all of that into the historian and the timestamps would line up, as if it the historian was monitoring it in real time because the timestamp originates from the edge from the actual event itself. But that's the short answer to your question, Matt. But I, I will do a longer answer, and then I will next week we'll we'll talk about Tulip.io, okay? Uh, which questions. is an IoT platform.
0: A couple questions came in, uh, yep. Stephen. Egan in the YouTube chat said, hey, Walker, when doing predictive analytics, do you declare variables for the components age,
2: date, when new, for example? Yep. Yep. So what we do, and and we do this on the edge, our user, the UDT that lines up to that sensor has an install date, serial number, model number, who installed it, all that.
0: So he said, so if you're trying to predict mean time to failure, the component is new at a certain date. So if so, how do you handle to reset the variable when it is replaced?
2: Hope we do understand. that on the in the SCADA layer. So on the, te- the faceplate for the sensor in the SCADA system, we open the faceplate and change the sensor. So there's a button, installed new sensor, and then generally, we'll have a comment or something you know installed by so-and-so. Long term, and we've never done this yet, actually, Long term, what we want to do is get that from the CMMS, but we, we we have the connections with the CMMS, but we've never actually taken that event from the CMMS. I have a question. Sure.
0: Why not just have it edge driven? Like why not have the sensor announce itself in the... We, that it, hey, we te- th-
2: we've tested that some sensors, right? So if you're using like B&B SmartWorks sensors, You, you. There's enough context from the raw sensor to the puck, so that you know that's a brand new sensor. But a analog sensor that's like just a four to twenty with two wires, there's no context. But if it's a heart, right? If it's a heart device, there's that context across the uh, across the protocol. So the to answer your question, Zach. Long term, once we change the sensor, the sensor will, especially once everyone you know OEMs are providing. OEMs are providing that context from the sensor, right? The sensor is actually smart, and it can tell us the serial numbers stored on a EEPROM on the on the device itself. It, that'll all be edge driven. Right now, the way we do it is through a faceplate. If someone makes a change to a sensor, changes out a four to twenty, you go to that faceplate and say changed out, and now we've got that context. But yes, outstanding question. question, Stephen. We yeah,
0: last question before we get off here. Mr. Man, uh, Mr. Manto said, any thoughts on influx DB as a historian, I feel like it has the power to be one. And if it could interact with MQTT more neatly, that would be nice.
2: The answer is it see the board behind me right here, that's the influx DB is the historian I'm running on that board. So um, they, they would like a q&a or a video on data parameters and timestamp questions. Oh, that that's a great idea, Cheryl. Um, yes, to answer your question, influx DB, by the way, um, started out as a DevOps. I mean, they still are a DevOps company. That is, they created the technology that they sell to other companies so that they can sell historians. So, um, you know, there are many people out there who use InfluxDB as the actual historian, but it's it's white labeled and it's called something else. Um, but InfluxDB is actually running on a Raspberry Pi with Grafana um, on, that, uh, on that board behind me. That's uh, the actual local historian I'm using.
0: Guys, thank you, Andrew Appreciate uh, you guys' for questions. Thank you guys for coming uh, to the live stream, showing up live. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and like, and check out the Digital Factory Mastermind program. If you do see that board behind Walker's head right there, we dive deep into building a unified namespace, connecting to ERP, connecting to Historian, which we did a, a few weeks ago. So join the mastermind. Click that link below, and you're supporting this this right here. So thank you. Guys. I'm gonna answer.
2: I'm gonna answer one more question before we drop off real quick. Uh, so ragu uh asks can you please comment on how the redundancy server in ignition works is there a notification when the redundant server syncs with the primary server so that we manually switch over to the primary the answer is yes um that's available in the tags inside of ignition so there is a there there are tags that'll tell you which of the ignition redundant servers are active are they, are they active and which one is the primary? You can actually monitor that from the tags. If that isn't a sufficient answer, we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll uh, you know, I'll answer it deeply in another video. I appreciate everyone's time. Thank you very much. Dan Riken, Sir Riken, <laughs> Lieutenant Dan, thank you for joining us. I hope it was, I hope it was fun for you.
1: A total blast
0: awesome
2: brother appreciate yeah. you thank guys, you we'll see
0: you guys next week we'll have uh dave schultz on the q a spotlight
2: we will see you guys friday in the in the digital transformation maturity assessment webinar All Right.